You may have noticed that there's no shortage of cultural commentators these days, right? Have you noticed this? Am I the only one? Everybody's got an opinion, and everybody wants to let everybody know what their opinion is. But here's one thing. Despite the things we disagree on, one thing that we can all agree on is we've become profoundly confused as a culture. We've become profoundly confused when it comes to the question of what does it mean to be human? What does that mean to be human? Because everybody says, well, it's, it's time to progress, right? To shake off the shackles of norms and stereotypes. But the irony is the term progress means to head towards an ideal or a destination, but we are never told what that destination is. All that we need is just to progress anywhere. But often we don't ask ourselves the important question that in an attempt to unfetter ourselves from the constraints of society, are we really maybe unfettering ourselves from our souls? You don't need to look very hard to see that the questions we are now asking ourselves as human beings proves that we've entered into a brave new world of profound confusion. For instance, it can no longer be taken for granted that even something so essential to our being, even the, the biological sex that we were born with, is actually a sacred gift from God and is a wonderful design for, for who you are. The most obvious display of this has been the media storm surrounding Bruce Jenner's uh, very public and, and bizarre transition into Caitlyn Jenner. I can't check CNN without finding out what he or she wore last week to an award ceremony. It's, it's very bizarre. But one of the things that makes the conversation even more challenging, especially for Christians, is you aren't allowed now to even enter the conversation without giving total support and celebration for what anybody says is the new norm. And so every media outlet is showing us all these stories after stories of these profound and strange questions, but we're told, but you can't engage unless you totally from the outset give full support to what anybody says. But one other thing actually further complicates this situation for the Christian. Christians are often seen as naive when it comes to science, right? We're told that we're ignorant of science and we're scared to see the truth of science. But But the reality is no amount of exterior uh, alterations can change the chromosomal reality of a human being. And so we're told that if somebody identifies as a different sex, that you must call them that, but that's not scientific. So so what do we choose, science or, or what's called tolerance? The only point I'm trying to make is that we are profoundly confused as to what it means to be human. But even Jenner's response post-surgery shows that it's not just us that's confused, but it made him confused as well. He said he suffered a panic attack and thought, what have I just done to myself? Well, he was reassured by one of the counselors there that that reaction was actually the typical reaction to the pain medication that he had received. I would beg to differ on that. It's confusing, to say the least. As an inevitable response to the blurring of these lines, earlier this month, CNN published uh, an article entitled this, Goodbye to He and She, Hello to Z. And it begins with these words, Language changes with the times. 
And when it comes to our conceptions of gender, the times are most certainly changing. We are opening up to the idea that binary conceptions of gender are unnecessarily rigid and don't correspond to the self-image of a great many people. And even that people's sense of their gender may not correspond to their biological sex. In this new world, a bland opposition between he and she seems increasingly antique and even insulting to many. Once again, what's my point? It is not to give you a lecture on the profound complexities of gender identity. It's just to show that we are very confused as a culture. And hear me on this. We are all in this same situation. We have all become confused as to what it means to be human, and this is the reason. The fall of mankind has given us a sort of spiritual amnesia. So even if you do or don't struggle with gender identities, we are all in this struggle together. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, says it beautifully in his book, Orthodoxy. Speaking of this spiritual amnesia, he writes, We are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. And all that we call common sense and rationality only means that for certain dead levels of our life, we forget that we have forgotten. All that we call spirit and art and ecstasy only means that for one awful moment, we remember that we forget. Here's the truth, friends. You and I and every other human on this planet was created in the image of God Almighty. And when you abstract the human soul from its creator, it gets profoundly confused. Like a fish that washes up on the shore and starts to flounder because it doesn't understand this environment, so it is with our souls when we abstract them from our creator. And it's in this spiritual lostness that Jesus comes thundering in with the most liberating words imaginable. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save our lost and confused souls. Here's the big idea. Jesus doesn't ask us what we identify as. Jesus gives us an identity. Jesus doesn't ask us what we identify as. Jesus gives us an identity. And this is why the message of Christ is both incredibly offensive and incredibly freeing. Because the proud heart says, I'm my own person. Who is anybody to say who I am? And Jesus says, well, I created you. So I'm probably in that category of people who can say, what's your best design? But the humble heart, the one that knows it is profoundly lost, sees the Son of Man coming and says, it is amazing that God Almighty left the 99 to come save me. It's a posture of the heart. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus alone restores fractured identities. And in our text today, Jesus is going to speak into the deeper identity as to what it means to be a Christian. This is why it's important to understand that Jesus creates our identity because he's going to make identity claims to us this morning if you are a disciple of his. If you are newer to PRISM or maybe haven't been here for the last month, each year we take a month to have 
what we call Vision Month, just to talk about why do we even exist. So by way of recap, and maybe if this is your first Sunday, I'm going to give you our vision and our mission. PRISM's vision is this, to shine the light of God's grace and love to L.A.'s San Gabriel Valley and to the world. Our vision is to shine the light of God's grace and love to all those around us. That's what we are about. That's what we want to do. And then our mission is how we plan on accomplishing this. This is to revive believers who will then reach their friends, who will then participate in the renewal of culture for the glory of Jesus Christ. And today we will be zeroing in on the final aspect of our mission, namely, how are we going to participate in the renewal of all things with Jesus? And we are going to use Matthew 5 as our guide to how he means to use us as useful instruments in his redeeming hands. So feel free to open to to Matthew 5 this morning. It's very important that you see this is what Jesus says. It doesn't matter what I have to say. It matters what Jesus has to say. So as you're turning there, let's talk about the context for a minute. Because it's always important to understand the context of the text before you dive into it. Well, today we find ourselves in the midst of Jesus' longest sermon recorded in Scripture. It's called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this title didn't come by uh, the fact that we found his transcript and saw what he titled it. Um, It comes by the first verse in Matthew 5, and it says this. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So this gives us both the location and his audience. Jesus is sitting on a mountain, and he is speaking to his disciples. Now, sure, there there were definitely crowds around who were listening in, and some who didn't believe that Jesus was who he says he was at all. But these specific words were directed to his disciples. And it's important that we understand that, because like I said, he's going to make an identity claim about that. And so we need to know who he's talking to. Let's read the text again in its entirety. We're in uh, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, and it reads, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. This is what Jesus Christ says about you this morning if you are one of his disciples. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Both of these concepts are are, are very rich and deep, and since we've spent the last three weeks looking at light, today we're going to really hone in on this one. You are the salt of the earth. So what does this mean? Well, remember, it's important to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience who would have heard this, because much of the weight of these words are lost on us this morning for two reasons. One, we don't realize how valuable salt actually was back then, and we don't know what it's like to be marginalized as peasant Jews shrouded by the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus says this morning to us as Prism Church, you are the salt of the earth, we need to realize the weightiness 
that these words would have had on the ears of his original um, listeners. Like I said, salt was actually a very important part of their economy. Um, Fun fact, uh, our word salary actually comes from the word salt. It's the word sal, S-A-L. Some commentators speculate that Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt, hence salary, hence a man is not worth his salt. Salt had great value. And Jesus is looking at these poor, marginalized Jews under the umbrella of Rome and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are valuable and significant, not because you identify as such, but because I'm the identity giver, and I say you are the salt of the earth. Jesus shows us, as he often does, that the economics of his kingdom profoundly trump the economics of our world. Paul makes this point explicit, speaking to the pagans in Corinth who had become Christians. He writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's got to make you feel good. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So even initially on the surface, Jesus is pouring out the grace of the gospel and is saying, I give you your identity as valuable and significant, not because you identify as such, but because I created you and I tell you who you are. But more specifically, what is Jesus saying to us as Prism Church in 2015 in Pasadena, California this morning and calling us the salt of the earth? Well, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. I have three responses to the question, Why does the earth need salt? That seems like a logical question, right? If he says you're the salt of the earth, why in the world does the earth need salt? Well, let's look at three reasons the earth needs salt this morning. Number one, salt arouses a spiritual thirst. Salt arouses a spiritual thirst. We were all created thirsty. God designed it that way. We were not created to be autonomous, and to be totally self-sufficient. We were created with a deep thirst for totally free and unguarded relationship with God and each other. That's how we were created. One reason the earth needs salt is because sin has tragically distorted our spiritual taste buds. So now the things that lead to death actually taste appealing to us, and the things that would bring life we have no appetite for. And so we need a spiritual thirst to be aroused in us. Here's the truth about sin. Sin is not having desires that are too strong. Sin is not primarily a desire thing. God created us with desires. Desire is a wonderful gift from God. Sin is seeking to satiate your desire with water that's been poisoned. That's the essence of sin. Your desires are good desires. It's that they become bent, and so now we try to quench our thirst with something that will kill us. And God is not happy when his creation tries to kill itself. He says this in Jeremiah 2. My people have committed two evils. Now check out what these evils are that God says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
So is desire wrong? Is thirst wrong? Not at all. God says what is offensive is having a total spring of fresh water and rejecting it and picking up cisterns that can hold no water and trying to quench your thirst with the cisterns. That's what's evil to God. God never called desire evil. God gave us desires. He made us thirsty. It's a good thing to be thirsty, but it's a bad thing to drink poisoned water. That's what God says. For instance, why does God say that it's wrong to sleep together before marriage? Is it because the desire for sex is a bad thing? Not at all. That is a wonderful, God-given desire. But God knows it is a very unhelpful thing for that to happen between two people who have not looked each other in the eyes and said, I promise I will never leave you. I swear, before God and before my family. It is unhelpful to perform that outside of that promise because it will lead to massive insecurity and massive shame. God created it. He knows how it's meant to work. And he says, it is beautiful when it's played out this way. If you haven't promised to somebody that I will never leave you, it's not beautiful. It's not beautiful because it's meant to create intimacy. God created it. The desire is good, but fulfilling that desire in a way that won't bring life is offensive to God. If you're a parent, you've definitely seen this. There is a reason you don't concede to every desire of your child. There's a reason you don't let them chug frappuccinos and do cartwheels down Colorado. That is unhelpful to them. Is their desire for fun and discovery bad? Of course not. But they don't have a long enough vision of what will feed their soul ultimately. And so we say, no, you're not playing Minecraft on the iPad till 2 a.m. It's not helpful. I know it's a good desire to want to create, but we'll figure it out in a different way. And it's the same thing with us, friends. God gave us our desires but he knows that our desires are now tragically bent. And this is one of the reasons that the earth needs salt, to arouse a new spiritual thirst. We are the salt of the earth. This is what Jesus is saying. Because one of the miracles of the new birth, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, he actually creates new desires in you new inclinations. So now your good desires manifest themselves in the way that it was actually designed. And it's also the reason that the conviction we feel when we sin is a sweet gift of God. It's actually evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside of you and is saying, right now, this temple is not very hospitable. Conviction is a sweet gift. I saw this take place um, in my buddy Christian's life. Um, he was one of my dearest friends, and one of my greatest joys that I've experienced um, is, is leading him to the Lord uh, a couple years ago. This is a shot I took of him opening up for One Republic at the House of Blues back in the day. And um, Christian is well known in the Orlando music scene. He played tons of shows. He's just one of those he gigs for his career. Well, I led him to the Lord, and then through the miracle of the new birth, his desires started to change, and so the songs he sang changed, and the things he said from stage changed, and the stuff he posted on social media changed. And he told me a, a couple weeks later the strangest thing, the people that he used to be connected to are now reaching out to him. He hasn't talked to them in years, but they're asking them, what in the world has happened to you? And then they would just start sharing about their lives and the struggles that they were having, and Christian would say to me, why are they looking to me to give them counsel? I have lived like a fool my whole life. 
And I told them, because they're thirsty. And they see that you've drank from something that can actually bring life. Friends, everybody wants peace. Everybody wants the wholeness that God designed us for. And so you are the salt of the earth. You arouse a spiritual thirst in others. And Jesus says that whenever you drink of his water, it actually causes a spring to well up in your soul that leads to eternal life. And we can share that water with others. He says it in John 4. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is a piece of what cultural renewal looks like at prison. Living in such a way that is winsome and inviting to folks who will ask, what has changed? Why do you now have peace and joy? Of course, not that we're perfect, but we have an abiding joy amidst circumstances. We have a ballast that is not contingent ultimately on our circumstances. This will provide a spiritual thirst in people. Salt arouses a spiritual thirst. The second reason the earth needs salt is this. Salt uncovers a deeper savor. Salt uncovers a stronger savor. One of the main uses of salt is to draw out deeper savors in foods. If you like to grill steak um, and you're smart, you'll put salt on the steak. And the salt makes the flavor just come, explode out of the steak. And when you eat the steak, this is what you don't say. You don't say, that is amazing salt. You say, that steak is incredible. Because salt has this incredible quality about it. it. It's so common to our experience that we probably don't actually stop to think about how amazing this is. It can draw out the savor in something without bringing any attention to itself. It's an amazing thing. It uncovers this deeper and hidden savor. As Christians, we have the utterly unique ability to draw out the stronger savors of reality. Because we are the ones who know the Creator. We are the ones who understand this massive story of redemption that, Jesus, that God has started and found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is how we draw out the deeper savers. For example, we know that marriage is not just an amazing thing because of the display of love and commitments and because it's, it's beneficial to the human herd. That's an amazing thing, but it's not the most amazing thing about marriage. The most amazing thing about marriage is that it is a profound mystery of Christ's love for the church, how God incarnate cares for his creation even when they were very unlovable. Marriage has a stronger savor. We know that there is a reason that staring into the night sky and seeing constellations and seeing uh, planets and the whole ensemble creates in us a longing and a wonder and an amazement. Well, we know why. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. I've had this great joy over the past couple of weeks of being at Caltech and leading a discussion there. And I've been so encouraged, even having coffee with Jamie this week, to see that her, her research doesn't just leave, uh, result in more data, but it results appropriately in adoration for the Creator. Because space has a deeper savor. If you're an artist, you know that you love to create because God loves to create. And after God created, he looked at what he made and he said, that is amazing. I love that. 
That is so awesome. Well, it's no wonder that after you create, you look at what you made and said, that is good. That is a good thing to do. Because the reality is you're made in God's image. And you're a sub-creator under the apprenticeship of God Almighty. Art has a deeper savor. And if you are in the film industry, you are the one who knows why the best stories always have a conflict and a hero and a redemptive ending, or at least the longing for a redemptive ending. If there isn't redemption, there's something in us that is not satisfied. And we know why, because this is the reality of our existence. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle, a war that's being waged for nothing less than the souls of men and women. And God, in an unbelievable act, became a man in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the hero of the story, and we know the ending. It ends with him being sovereign Lord of the universe with every tear wiped away. Movies have a stronger savor. And as Christians, we are the ones who can point to that and say, that, that's why you think that's amazing. No matter what sphere of influence you are in, whether you're a CEO or a janitor, your duty is a sacred responsibility. When Jesus Christ himself came, he was a carpenter and then the servant of all. That is the highest level, according to Jesus. And so we have an amazing responsibility to be the salt of, our, uh, salt of the earth in our sphere of influence. Don't take lightly your job. Even if you're waiting for something else, realize the position you're in right now is a sacred responsibility. There's someone who's looking to you to show them the deeper savor of life. After moving out here last year, I started doing a, a little woodworking on the side, um, and the working title for my business has become a true myth. And uh, understandably, some of you have asked, well, where in the world did that come from? Well, if you know me at all, you, you won't be surprised to know that it finds its origins in C.S. Lewis, something that he wrote. He was a close friend with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. They were both dons at Oxford, and, and Lewis was an atheist, and Tolkien was a believer. And they would often stay up late having conversations about literature and, of course, ultimately about faith because Tolkien loved Jesus and he wanted Lewis, his friend, to love Jesus as well. And after one of their talks, um, Lewis kind of had a, a restless night of just pondering the claims of Christianity and pondering the reality of Christ. And he penned these words after that sleepless night. He said this, The story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference. It really happened. So Lewis came to realize, yeah, the story of Christianity is this great myth, but it's actually true. It's actually the outlet that every other myth plugs into to give meaning. And Tolkien helped him see that there is a deeper savor to the stories you write. And you know it. It's there in your soul because the voice of your creator is echoing in your soul and you can't escape it no matter how hard you try. Lewis would go on to write this, which beautifully encapsulates this big idea that I'm laboring to make. He wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I now see everything else. This is what we're talking about. Tolkien had salted the earth of C.S. Lewis for six years, and God in his grace, because salvation is totally a work of grace, started to lift the veil 
for C.S. Lewis so that he could see that this actually is the truth. So here's a question. Do you take seriously the reality that you are somebody's Tolkien? Do you take seriously the reality that you are the salt of the earth? In your sphere of influence, you might be the only person who understands the story behind the story. God has placed you around specific people who, even though they might not even know it, are looking to you to be the salt of the earth, to give meaning to existence, to explain to them why they love things and hate things and want justice. It's because the voice of our Creator is in all of our souls. And sometimes we just need to point to it and say, that echo is coming from there. It's coming from the shout of the Almighty. You are the salt of the earth. Because one of the really sad truths about people who reject God or Christianity is they often point to, to pain and suffering in the world, and they can't reconcile the reality of a good, creative God and, and pain and suffering. And, and that is a really good question, and it's one that's worth a lot of struggle with, and we should talk about that. But there's another problem that you have to contend with if you do reject God. So we can call the, the first one the problem of pain. If you reject God, you have to face the problem of pleasure. The problem that you have these amazing yearnings. When you look at a sunset, you are blown away and you have no idea why. Chesterton wrote it this way. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. Think of that. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but being weary of joy. So if you're a musician or whatever you do and you create and you love it, but at the end of the day, you have no idea why. That leads to despair. And that is profound. Christ is the great Rosetta Stone. He gives meaning to reality. We know Christ. People want to know Christ even if they don't know it because they find their purpose and their meaning in him. You are the salt of the earth, friends. Salt arouses a spiritual thirst. Salt uncovers a stronger savor. And finally, salt ensures preservation. One of the most vital usages of salt in antiquity was its preservative quality. So you could pack meat in salt, and it would last for much longer than it would outside of that. Um, and so in a very real way, salt was a means of life for those in antiquity. It was their food source that it protected. And in the same way, we are called as Christians to be the salt of the earth. Now, we can't save anybody, which is actually a really freeing thing. Salvation is totally from the Lord. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that salts and preserves our souls. But the good news of this comes through men. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the sealant on our souls, the salt on our souls that preserves us until the coming of Christ. Once again, salvation is totally from the Lord. But we have a responsibility to be the salt of the earth, to herald the good news of preservation. Isaiah 52.7 speaks beautifully of the responsibility that we have to be the salt of the earth in this context. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What is this good news? As we said at the beginning, it's the good news that Jesus restores our fractured identity. Through sin, our souls have been tarnished, and we now have an appetite for things that bring destruction. Jesus Christ comes and he wipes us totally clean by his grace, gives us his spirit, and gives us salvation. We are the salt of the earth. And this is another way that cultural renewal happens, we believe, at PRISM. It's by experience after experience, God regenerating hearts through different friendships, through different contexts, and then through that, the kingdom starts to expand. But something that is important for us to remember is this takes time. We never know the timeline on somebody's salvation, on somebody's journey, so we need to have a faithful presence in their life and not grow weary and even remember how long it took us I was reminded of this um, very much this weekend. I had a, a good friend come to stay with me. He was um, uh, in my band back in the day, raised in the church, but in his 20s, totally walked away and actually started to become very hostile towards Christianity. Got into the readings of Dawkins and a bunch of the new atheists and just had this angst at him. And so we'd have lots of discussions. He always just liked to kind of play philosophical badminton with me, and, and, and I would oblige. Um, but I, I knew ultimately I can't do anything. But the reality is, it, it, it was easy, and I did at times just think, this is a lost cause. Well, he calls me up uh, the other day and says, I'm going to be in town, and I'm going to stay an extra day so I can come, come to your place. And, and he came, and he's like, I just wanted to talk. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on some things. And the Lord had done some things in his life that really stirred him up. He's still journeying, but at the end of the stay, I, I got to pray for him. And it was an amazing thing for me to have my hand in him a dude who was so angry before, and now he's still confused and, and looking. But, um, but he reached out and said, I, I, he literally said, I just wanted to hear some wise words from my friend Brooks. And so uh, you, you never know somebody's story. You need to be patient. God is not slow as we count slow, friends. There are so many people in your life that God is working on. And you need to be encouraged that salvation is from Jesus Christ. There is no effort you can do to create salvation. If you did, you should get the glory, and Jesus won't let that happen. But we need to be faithful in our relationships and realize how amazing that call is. You are the salt of the earth. So as we conclude our vision month, I couldn't kind of help but smile as I read the remainder of our text, or one of the verses uh, this week, Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And here we are in our little chapel perched up on this little hill in Pasadena, California. And that's not by accident, friends. Um, Jesus has called us to be the salt of the earth in our context. And he has given us a little chapel on a hill so that we can be a beacon for this season and uh, steward it well for his glory. So this is our vision. This is our mission at PRISM, to revive uh, believers who then will go out and reach friends with the good news of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus restores fractured identities and he forgives sins. And through that, we will participate in the renewal of culture. And this is the really good news that grounds all of this. Culture will be renewed. It's going to happen. 
If you are, are part of a company, you know you might have a vision, but you know you don't know if it will actually be accomplished. We know that Jesus will one day make all things new. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to end our vision month by just quickly looking at the scriptures, which give us a vision of the ultimate cultural renewal in the new heavens and the new earth. So we'll be in Revelation 21 just for a moment. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its Lamb is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. Culture will be renewed. Jesus is faithful. He is the beginning and the end. And we have an incredibly significant role to play in that. As the Apostle Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. May that be true of all of us. Let's pray, friends. Jesus, we are so thankful (laughs) that you know our frame and you remember that we are dust. We are so thankful for the magnitude of example in the scriptures of you using broken men and women to bring about salvations and to usher in your kingdom. That is very encouraging to me because I, I am very aware of how frail I am and how unworthy I am even to be standing up here. But that was by design. And so that no man would boast in the presence of you. And so we just thank you for for that truth. Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come. If there is anybody in this chapel under the listening of my ear who has not had their identity restored by Jesus Christ, their creator, who is still floundering, wondering which way is up, wondering why it's so hard to figure out the point that you would shine the light of the gospel in their hearts, the good news of free grace, that the wages of sin is death, but your gift is eternal life. And it takes nothing on our part except for empty hands who come to you saying, I need it, I need grace. I need grace, Lord, and I'm so thankful that your grace is sufficient even for a sinner like me. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for our church. I pray that you would birth this vision deep in our hearts and that you would see it blossom through our little chapel. For the glory of your name.